Live from the bridge at the Launchpad Studios in Huntington, New York, it's Sports Talk New York with your hosts, Mark Rosenman and A.J. Carter. Sports Talk New York is sponsored in part by Cardboard Memories, Clearview, Long Island, the law firm of Decalator, Cohen, and DePrisco, the Phoenix Tube Company, Pims Incorporated, fueling brand performance for 30 years, Prince Associates for all your insurance needs, and Soho Table Hockey. Here are your hosts, Mark and AJ. Joining us now is a man who was a place kicker in the National Football League. He played for the San Diego Chargers from 1977 until 1986. He was a second-team All-Pro in 1980. He won the George S. Hallis Courage Award in 1981, made the Pro Bowl in 1982, was the NFL's Man of the Year in 1983, and is a member of the Chargers Hall of Fame. He played a key role in the epic in Miami, the National Football League AFC Divisional Playoff between the San Diego Chargers and Miami Dolphins that took place on January 2nd, 1982 in the Miami Orange Bowl. As his 29-yard field goal gave the Chargers a 41-38 win after 13 minutes and 52 seconds of overtime play. It is a pleasure to welcome Ralph Benershka to Sports Talk New York. Welcome, Ralph. How you doing? Hey, Mark. <laughs> nice of you to have me on. The timing's awkward, isn't it, at the end of the game here? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know what? Right when we went to break was right when Kansas City hit the field goal. So I think it's almost perfect timing because, you know, <laughs> up until last week, I actually thought that game was maybe the greatest playoff game ever. And before we, we talk about that game, let's talk a little bit about your career. You grow up in San Diego. You attend La Jolla High School where you played multiple sports, soccer, wrestling. You're a member of the ski club as well as football. Your classmates seem to have your career path correct as you're voted most athletic athletic as well as best looking. What are some of the life lessons you took from playing two big soccer tournaments, the PSA and the United States National Tournament, and then from your football coaches, Gene Edwards and, and Bald Tromatter? Well, a, a few things. First, Mark, I was actually raised on the East Coast, and my father moved us out here from Dartmouth. He was a medical school professor. I was raised back in New England until I was 15. And one day he announced without asking us three kids, you know, telling us we're moving to San Diego. He was recruited to help start the medical school out here. So as I was going into 10th grade, we ended up in La Jolla and all the sports that I had grown up doing, we didn't do it. There's no hockey team. There was no ski team. There was no soccer team. The tennis team was the best in the nation. I hadn't grown yet. So I was, I was frustrated to know what to do. We ended up starting a soccer team my junior year in high school, but out here in California, this is how life works out here in California. Soccer is played in the winter not in the fall, like on the East coast. And so I got talked into playing football my senior year. Uh, and only because of that, did I end up, you know, that was a huge, you know, life, uh, correction change for me. I ended up, you know, we didn't have a very good team. Kicking was not hard at all. If you can kick a soccer ball, while you kick football. And I got, uh, recruited to play at a bunch of different schools, UCLA and USC and Cal and Stanford and San Diego state. And, so I went to my dad and say, look, they want to pay, you know, they want to pay my way scholarship to go to Stanford. What are you thinking? He looked at me like I had three eyes. He go, are you kidding me? That's not why you go to college. You go there to study. And so I go, yeah, you're probably right. I don't know if I'm any good anyway. So I ended up going to UC Davis because they had a zoology degree. And so I was passionate about wildlife and saw myself as a field biologist and ended up going there. Uh, didn't, didn't know if they had a team, didn't sign up for it until a week into my freshman year, I get a call from the head coach who basically says, look, I know you were recruited to go everywhere. How come you're not playing football? And he, and I said, well, I'm worried about my studies. And he said, well, why don't you play? And he talked me into playing and he, he changed my life dramatically 
um, the lessons, you know, I learned, you asked the question, lessons I learned. One is you just never know what's going to change your life. I think that's true. And a lot of people, how you got into sports broadcasting, everybody has their own little story about maybe a redirective person or point experience. And that's what it was for me. And then it was recognizing very quickly, even though I went to UC Davis, which was Division II non-scholarship school, that I could actually play with these guys in the NFL once I got there. You know, you mentioned about UC Davis and you were a two-sport athlete there, but it's also interesting because sometimes you played those two sports on the same day. You would run from to catch a plane after a soccer game in Hayward to get to Chico in time for football games. I have to imagine as a college student, that that's kind of nerve-wracking. What was that like? Well, uh, you know, again, had I gone to USC or Stanford, I'm sure they wouldn't have done that. But so the story behind that is I, I played my freshman year and you know, had a, had a fun time, but in the meantime, played lots of intramural soccer and we had a dorm team and a co-ed team. And pretty soon I'm, I realized I'm playing with all the guys on the varsity and they're great guys. And I realized I can hang with them playing, playing soccer. And so they, they talked me into it, but, but in college, soccer and football are both in the fall. So now I'd have to make a choice. So I actually chose soccer. I went to the football coach said, look, you got another kicker. I'm going to go play soccer. And he could have said, go ahead, but he didn't. He said, well, let me talk to the soccer coach. And they, they worked it out where I could actually play both sports um, in the same season and did that for the next three years and had an amazing experience all the way around and, and probably kept sports in the proper perspective. You know, it's uh, it's it's a neat thing to do, but it wasn't going to be my whole life. And then all of a sudden it was my life. It was, it was kind of a crazy transition. Yeah, it's interesting. You mentioned the way your dad looked at you. Your agent was Lee Steinberg, the super agent who's offered credited as the real life inspiration for uh, Cameron Crowe's film, Jerry Maguire in 1996. He tells an interesting story when talking about meeting your parents. And I think the line was from your mom who said she thought that you would be better off conducting experiments on a pig bladder rather than kicking one. What were those <laughs> conversations like with your parents? And, and, you know, when you get picked with the second to last pick in the draft by the Raiders about the choice to play professional football. <laughs> well, you're bringing up a lot of funny stories. So, yes, I was a, a client of Lee's. I was his third client. I was nobody. He got started because Steve Bartkowski had been drafted in the first round, and he happened to be the RA on the dorm when Steve was a senior. Uh, Steve needed an agent. Lee was the guy that stepped in, you know, negotiates the richest contract and starts Lee's career. <clears throat> the only reason I got with Lee, Lee was brand new in this all, but our coach at Davis knew the coach at Cal and I got introduced when it was clear something was going to happen with me. And as you mentioned, I was, you know, the last player taken or second to last player taken and got connected with Lee and Lee had a great, was an idealist. He, he, he recognized that as athletes, we had a platform and we could redirect the attention placed on us to something that was important to us. But when I got drafted, my dad was, you know, shocked. I, they're going to pay you to play a kick a football. You know, when are you going to get a real job and make a difference? And, he, he was an immigrant. You know, we didn't grow up with a television. This was all new to him. And so it was, uh, it was a learning experience for all of us, for sure. <laughs> that Raider camp had some pretty tough competition. You had the man who succeeded George Blander, Fred Stanford, and the veteran Earl Mound. Um, What did you learn from them and your time with the Raiders in that first camp? That's a great question. So there were three, there were three of us kickers, two veterans, and I was the young kid that was drafted. Uh, Fred Steinford had injured his leg the year before. They had brought in Errol Mann to finish off. They won the Super Bowl that year. That was the John Madden Super Bowl. So I'm there. And the, and the story was that Madden didn't like rookies and he, and he hated kickers. <laughs> so I was a rookie kicker. Like I was as low as it could be. And 
um, I, I actually didn't like John Madden because he would. So back then we had it was six preseason games, so nine weeks of training camp, double sessions. It's hundred degrees, really a challenge. And it wasn't so much for me, but for the lineman. And here's what happened. So at the end of every practice in the morning, the first practice, he would yell, "Kicker, you got one shot, forty-five yards. If you make it." Everybody goes in and showers. If you miss it, everybody runs 1,000-yard sprints. <laughs> and you can imagine Gene Upshaw and Art Shell and Dave <laughs> Castor and all these guys did not want to run 100-yard sprints at the end of a morning practice, knowing there's another practice of 100 degrees coming here in a couple hours. So he did that every day. It was relentless, and I hated him for it. I mean, I knew what he was trying to do, but I still hated him for it. And uh, you know, ultimately, it had a lot to do with. I guess me staying alive. Some people ask me to make it. Like, the only reason I'm alive is, is yeah, I made it because those guys wouldn't have liked it if I missed it. But it was great training, and and uh, he was actually a, a really a, a special inf- influence on my life, as was that whole experience up there. So you're waived, and you get picked up by the Chargers. We have a great rookie season, hitting 17 of 23 field goal attempts, finishing with the best percentage kicker in the NFL, hitting on your last 12 in a row to set a Charger record, just four of the NFL record at that time. But you start having your health issues in the offseason before the 78 season, developing chronic fever, abdominal cramps, which led to the diagnosis of ulcerative colitis, a form of inflammatory bowel disease. Your health problems get worse in the 79 season when on the team plane coming home from a road trip, you collapse. You then had to go undergo two surgeries to move your large intestine. Um, you're in the intensive care unit for weeks. When you're released from the hospital, you weighed only 123 pounds. How scary uh, of a time was that in your life? And what were some of the thoughts going through your head? Well, it was a, it was a horrible time. Uh, anybody that's had Crohn's disease or colitis can relate to it. Back then, we did not have um, good medicine to treat the disease. We still have a lot to, to learn there. But I was a kicker. Um, and so for, our, for all intents and purposes, that first season when I played sick, I you know, had a, a bad stomach ache and bloody diarrhea. And kind of kept my head down and kept playing and knowing what the teammates are going through and you're either the starting kicker or you're unemployed. And so I continue to play and play and play. And unfortunately kicking is more technique than, than strength. And so I could finish the season, but, but the last month of the season, I was literally playing the game on Sunday. It would take me to the hospital Sunday night to get a central IV in my neck, get fed. There was TPN all week released uh, Saturday to go be with my teammates uh, night at the hotel, play the game on Sunday and then back in the hospital. So for a month, I didn't really eat. It was trying to keep me, um, so, you know, energy through the TPN and, and finish the season, tried to start my third season, 1979 and four games into it collapsed on the team plane and needed surgeries or uh, complications and surgery at a second once, uh, you know, seven days later and then woke up uh, wearing two ostomy bags as you mentioned, 65 pounds below my playing weight, looking around going, oh my gosh, why did I live? From where I sit, there's nothing worth living for. Never thought I would play again. Wondered what my life would be like. I was two months in the hospital. And then ultimately, with my colon out, I started to recover. And the crazy story, Mark, is I was given a chance to play uh, the next year. I got my strength back. Um, never thought I would play. I had to wear a little protective uh, device around my abdomen to protect my stomas, but played um, seven more seasons and, and four of those with ostomies and, and uh, without intending to had a chance to talk about inflammatory bowel disease um, to 
you know, a country that didn't really talk about it back then. There are 3 million people with IBD. There are over 100,000 ostomy surgeries done a year and difficult thing to talk about. Very hard for me. I was 24 and, you know, I was single and I like girls and I'm, I'm wondering what kind of life I could have. But the truth is I could return and played all the other sports. I was a skier, you know, played hockey, was a scuba diver, loved the beach, could do all those things. And I returned to play football, which is crazy. And I'm now married with four kids. So I, I feel like um, it was life-changing. And then it was life-changing in other ways. It, it redirected my life into healthcare. I became very involved uh, in patient advocacy. I started my own healthcare company. And uh, everything, all of those experiences had a huge impact on what I do today. I'm, I'm you know, it's, it's 40 years post-game. That, that's yeah. my Miami you're talking about. So a lot of, a lot of water under the bridge, but I uh, feel very, very blessed, honestly. Yeah, and so many things came out after that. You know, you know, when you make that first comeback, you, you walk out onto the field as an honorary captain in November 18th, 1979 against the Steelers. Um, standing ovation at the coin flip. At that point, what's the thing that's going through your head? Did you think at that point that you were going to make it back to the NFL? And how much motivation was it that day, you know, being among your teammates? Mark, it's a great question. So I was two weeks out of the hospital. I'd been in the hospital two months. Um, I get uh, get out, and about t- 10 days later, the Chargers call and ask if I would like to come to the game and watch the game. I can hardly walk. I'd ne- not been out of the, you know, hardly been out of the house. And so I went to the game, and then my teammates, you know, heard that I was there, and they asked me to come down to the locker room. And the next thing I know, they're they're making me honorary captain for the day, and I'm going, I'm not sure I can walk that far out to the coin toss or not, but um, literally walking out there, we were playing the Steelers, as you remember, mentioned, and me, you know, me and Joe Green and Jack Hammond, these guys that I are such, you know, icons. I remember getting in the middle of the field, this, this the place, people are standing, and I'm getting this ovation. I'm I'm on the field weeping, weeping. I I just I'm so grateful for the fans that donated blood to save my life. The fact that they're encouraging me there, I'm just weeping. When I get to middle of the field and mean girl, Joe Green was just so kind to me. He says, you know, the fans must really love you. I didn't know what to say. I'm sitting there going, I, they love this team. I happen to be the player that got sick. But I never thought I'd play again. I, I As I walked out, I'm thinking this is the last time I'm ever on this field. But as I recovered, it was literally I couldn't curl five pounds. Uh, that day became a huge motivation for me. And. Then it was a question as, you know, would the ostomy bag stay on? Would I be allowed to, to, to play again? And, you know, I had a great coach, Coach Coriel, um, and our owner back then was Gene Klein. And I remember how I called a meeting with him. I said, I, look, I, I'd like to know, would, would you just allow me to compete for my job? Not, not, not with any special dispensation, just allow me to compete. And they could have said, Rolf, you know, it's been great. City loves you. Everything's good. But, you know, there are 100 kickers in line. None of them wear ostomy bags. But they didn't. Gene Klein said, well, if you can protect yourself, prove to the medical staff, go talk to Coriel. Yeah, I'd love to have you try out again. And so that's what happened. And I, I got to try out again and and then earned my job back. And, and uh, I'll, I'll just be forever grateful for those men for allowing me to do that. So over and above the, the physical toll that it took to get you back to the NFL, what were some of the mental hurdles that you had to overcome while you were training, you know, not to give up and, and to continue and, and persevere? Well, 
football can be a brutal game. It's, it's, you got to win, you have to produce. And so I, I didn't want anything special. I just wanted to, the team needed a kicker. I wanted to be the guy if, if I could earn that spot. And, and then given the chance to do that, I, I learned a lot from books I had read. One, one book particularly written by a POW who survived six years in the POW camps in Vietnam, you know, talked about you get an opportunity in times like that to discover this indomitable spirit that I believe God's gifted every one of us, that, that, that you get to uncover these sort of latent sort of um, covered up abilities you, you have, but don't know them. So you, 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 did, you recognize that you have more courage. You have a greater ability to persevere. You, you can cope more. You, you're more creative. You, you, you can dig deeper than you ever thought you could. And you get a chance to discover that. Now in the process, I've learned you always have a choice. You you can stay bitter. And I had a lot of reasons and I stayed there for a while. This, this wasn't fair. I was 23 and 24. My career was just taking off. The team was just getting good. I'm playing in my hometown. This just isn't fair. Why is this happening? Why? And I got I got stuck there, like a lot of people get stuck there. But it was it was people and this book and others that encouraged me to say, all right, you're gonna you choose to stay bitter, or you can choose to get better. And in the process of making the choice to get better, you discover all of these other attributes that you have, and you realize there are people willing to help. And in my case, our owner allowed to gave me a chance to try out. Coach encouraged me. Teammates were unbelievable to me. We had a big gathering last night of, of old teammates, and the stories we go back and tell it, the unique uh, bonds that get developed in a locker room, and, and particularly when somebody goes through something difficult and gets encouraged on the way back by your teammates is something you never forget. So um, those lessons, I think, when you learn them young, you live them out the rest of your life. No, no, no life is guaranteed 85 or 90 years. In my case, it really should have been 24 years. I was septic after my second surgery. I should have died in the same hospital my dad was working. And I didn't. And I didn't. And I, and I could have. And so you live life with appreciation for family and friends and the opportunity to do things. There's a gratefulness that just pervades everything. You know, we alluded in the open about that game. You are a central figure until this past weekend's Kansas City Buffalo game, what I thought was the greatest playoff game ever, the Epic in Miami, National Football League, AFC Divisional Playoff game against uh, the San Diego Chargers and the Miami Dolphins. Take us through what your memories of that game was and, and, and everything that was unfolding and what you're thinking as, as the kicker. Yeah, so it, it really did become this amazing game, and so many people saw it. I mean, I still run into people today who remember it just as you do, partly because there was a big storm, and most of this, the, the Northeast and Midwest was was covered in snow, and people were kept inside, and they watched this amazing game. But the game started out where we were ahead 24 nothing at the end of the first quarter, and we're all just, you know, we're, 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 we're thrilled. We're getting another game check. You know, if you think about back then, we didn't make much money at all. So the fact that you're going to go on to a, a divisional championship game was really a big deal. And then all of a sudden, Don Shula changes quarterbacks and takes out David Woodley, a young quarterback, and puts in Don Strzok, a veteran. And they mount this comeback. We're playing in Miami in the Orange Bowl. And just before halftime, they throw up what's become this famous <laughs> hook and ladder play. And they score a touchdown. And now we're up by only a touchdown. But momentum is completely on their side. If you were standing next to me, you know, five feet apart, you couldn't hear two feet apart. You couldn't hear me if I yelled at you that the stadium was so loud. 
So we get to the locker room and everybody's sort of got their head down. The coaches are sitting in the corner. They don't know what to say. People are just, you know, just, just like, what just happened? The last guy in was Dan Fouts, our quarterback. And Dan Fouts sees us all, you know, head down, moping around. And he takes his helmet and he throws it. The length of the locker room almost hits one of our star receivers, Wes Chandler. And he starts yelling at us with words I can't say on the, on the radio. <laughs> Get your heads out of your butt. They're not, they haven't stopped us yet. They're not going to stop. We're going to win this game. Get and he literally um, woke us up and, and, and made us realize, all right, yeah, we're, we're, we're ahead barely. But it, and, it, and the, the, the second half is this back and forth, back and forth. And um, they go ahead and we tie it. Uh, we tie it with about 30 seconds to go. Uh, we don't tie it until I make the extra point. And, and I remember walking out there going, you can't miss this is the fields all chewed up back then. And it was a horrible place to, to kick. And we make the kick. It was really one of the most precious kicks, pressure, pressure kicks that I kicked even in that game, which you're saying, but it left them 30 seconds <laughs> and they marched down the field and they had a chance to win it with a, a long field goal. And Kellen Winslow was inserted our tight end. Who's a big six foot seven tight end blocks the kick and it goes into overtime. And now back then it was a, it was like it is now it's a, it's a quarter long. We, we, we started and now, but it's like, it's like 95 degrees. People are, you know, sweating, you know, hauled off the field. Kevin Kellen Winslow was dragged off six or seven times IVs. I mean, people are just spent by the end of that game. They were close to a thousand yards in offense. I mean, it was a highlight reel of great plays. Yeah. But in overtime, we we march down the field quickly. There's a long pass, and they call for field goal on it was second or third down. I want to say second down, and our guys weren't ready. They they were on the side getting oxygen there, and and so they're called. They call for field goal. And we go running out there, but we're missing three guys, and so it's like a, it's like a fire drill. You know, where's it? Come on, get out here, get out here. And the clock's running down, and I'm going to the holder, who is a guy named Ed Luther. Ed, you know, we got to call time. I got to call time. He goes, no, no, it's short one. We'll kick it. It was like 32 yards. So we rushed the kick, and I missed the kick. And I remember Mark walking inside, and I was going, oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. I let this team down. I let this team down. And then we had to watch in agonizing slow motion as Miami marched down the field. And their kicker had a chance to kick a game winner. And didn't he kicked the ground first kicked it into the line and all of a sudden we get a reprieve and we get a second chance and and march down the field and and i get a second chance to 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 kick the game winner which never happens in overtime and i remember sitting on the plane flying home after this just an amazing game and reflecting it was sort of like my life I, I shouldn't have lived i get a second chance to live i should never have been able to play again i get a second chance to play and here in overtime, you know, a kicker just doesn't ever get a second chance. And I got a second chance to, to win it. And it goes down in one of the great games of all time. And it's just sort of metaphoric to my, my life. I'm just extraordinarily grateful for that. So you mentioned you missing the field goal. It was a hurried snap, a hurried um, snap in the field. You know, the guy didn't get it down and it was hurried. And then you watch, like you mentioned, them march down the field. Louis Von Chaman misses. And you get that second chance as you're going out there, you know, mentally does self-doubt start to creep in knowing that, you know, the last one was rushed. You missed it. Now you do have that second chance, but how do you block out those negative thoughts at that particular moment? Yeah. Well, first of all, the first one I take full responsibility for, I, I should have made it. There's just no way it was a, 
everything was, I just, I just, I'd take full going out there the second time. I was so excited to get a second chance. I mean, I, I couldn't wait to get out there. They called it again on third down. They just want to get the game over with. I could, I knew coach had confidence in me. I, I was, I was actually really confident and I really kicked it well. And it's a good thing. If you ever look at the slow motion replay that the outside wing guy uh, doesn't get blocked and he, lays out and he really he's pounding the ground afterwards he should have blocked it could have blocked it but i got it up quickly and 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 uh nobody ever knows that unless you look at the film closely so i gotta tell you going out there i was so excited uh, confident that that uh at this time it wasn't gonna it was gonna work but but very grateful too <laughs> you know I, I watch these kickers out here now we've watched some amazing kickers in the playoffs and you referenced the game last week. Honestly, the, the greatest game I've ever seen. It was it was absolutely unbelievable. And the kickers are so good now and make it look so easy. That, that's the only discouraging. It's not that easy, guys. It's just <laughs> not in the snow and not with that kind of pressure. And and uh, it's been really cool to see. Yeah, it's been great two weeks of football for sure after the, the first week, which is kind of a disappointment. But this past year, there was such a big deal made about Aaron Rodgers hosting Jeopardy. But you're way ahead of the curve on this one as you replaced uh, pretty much a game show legend in Pat Sajak as the host of Wheel of Fortune. How did that come about and what was that experience like? Well, you're going deep. So uh, when I left football, um, I, I got involved in healthcare and um as I mentioned, I, I started to speak a lot on behalf of patients with Crohn's disease. I was actually on a five-city media tour talking about the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation and the importance of the research we're doing and all that, and was on a show in L.A., and uh, Merv Griffin saw the show. Um, there's a story. To, uh, I'll tell you the quick story. So they say in, in, in television, never follow children or animals. So we were the third uh, set to go on, and the first was these precocious kids who were uh, singing uh, Les Miserables in LA, these cute little eight, nine, 10, 11 year old kids who were just adorable. So they finished. I'm going, Oh my goodness. The next one is, uh, is uh, uh, a, a guy who has what he's calling the pet of the nineties. He's got 25 different um, rabbits all over the stage. And pr pretty soon they're, you know, 25 rabbits and pretty soon they start humping each other like rabbits do and then the, the camera zooming in and zooming in and finally the, the the host realized he's lost total control and he he uh he says we'll, we'll be right back in a minute with Ralph and Erskine's life story life-threatening story of of Crohn's disease and so we come on next and of course we have to have some fun with that and and Merv Griffin has seized the show and is is actually building another show asked me to you know trash me to ask me to come out and try that I'm thinking this is interesting be curious um so I go do that in the middle of that, uh, Pat Sajak gets a nighttime talk show host opportunity. He always wanted to be, you know, a Johnny Carson. That was when Johnny Carson was retiring. So he does, does that. But back then, I'm giving you more information. Back then, there was a daytime version of the Wheel of Fortune and a nighttime version, a syndicated version. But the daytime version was on, on NBC. He was moving this to, to CBS's talk show. So they wouldn't let him do both. So he had to step down from that. They needed to replace him. I didn't realize any of this. There was this big national surge. People are sending tapes and I have no idea. Anyway, the short story is he invites me up to the show to meet Vanna, to do a little of that and go back and forth. And the next thing I know, I came back from New York. Uh, I had given a talk. I was this Sunday night, went to listen to my messages and on my answer machine. Back then we had answer machines. You remember 
And there was a message. This was Sunday night. It says, you've been selected the next host. You, you start on Thursday. <laughs> I go, what? <laughs> so that's how it started. And uh was never a goal of mine. It was interesting. I did it for a year season. And then uh, they, they uh, ended up changing that and, and sell, they sold it to another network and they did it another year. And then they, they stopped the daytime version and they did the, just the syndicated nighttime version. But, it's a brief glimpse into Hollywood that was interesting, you know, <laughs> and totally out of nowhere. <laughs> awesome. Ralph, so much, thanks so much for your time tonight. Where can people that are listening now catch up with you on social media and everything that you're up to these days? Yeah, you know, I'm not really on social media much. Um, I've got a healthcare company, Legacy Health Strategies. I've got a website, ralphfinerska.com. You can always do that. Um, um you know, I'm anyway. Yeah. So, so that'd probably be the, uh, the best way. Rolfinerska.com. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. And, uh, especially the, this last two weeks has been the weekends of the kickers and who better to speak to than, uh, one of the greatest games ever played in football as well. So thanks so much. We really appreciate You're kind. it. You're kind. Thanks Mark. Enjoy you, the rest. You Bye. got it. Ralph Finerska, 1983 NFL man of the